Hello and welcome to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. I'm Luke Plimmer. And I'm Laura East. And each episode takes a look at a different aspect of the wonderful world of amateur theatre and features an amateur theatre maker talking about their theatrical life, theatrical loves and the times when they've died on stage. Today's episode explores the challenges and rewards of creating theatre for children and families, especially at Christmas. And we're delighted that John will be talking to David Hill of Charlemont Dramatic Society, or CADS, in West Bromwich, about his life and loves in amateur theatre. John will also be going backstage with Luke to discover the secrets of the Crescent Theatre's Christmas production for 2021, James and the Giant Peach. But first, let's catch up with John. Where are you, John? I'm now stood outside the gates of Penny Hill Primary School in West Bromwich, a town of about 100,000 people that lies in the urban conurbation of Birmingham and the Black Country. I'm just waiting to meet David Hill, and I wish I could say he'd never missed an entrance, but that would be a mistruth. Oh, Dave. Ah, hello, John. All right, Dave, how are you? Fine, thanks. Oh, it's great to see you again. You too. Your ears must be burning because I was just talking about you. I was saying how punctual you, you always are. Dave, you're the chairman of CADS. You've been involved in the world of amateur theatre for a lifetime. We'll do proper introductions later. But one thing we always said to one another, waiting in the wings for our next entrance, adrenaline pumping, heart beating, eyes popping out of our heads with terror, trying desperately to recall our cue or, or entrance line or, or where on earth we were in the plot. One thing we always said to one another was, we live life on a knife edge. <laughs> well, little did I know it back then, but all of Charlemont Dramatic Society and its fine history was to find itself on a knife edge. Well, yes, um, I can start here in about 1947. They built up uh, this uh, drama company here, mainly two plays a year, yeah. maybe three occasionally, and, uh, and that went on until 2015. Right. And what happened then, Dave? Our last production here was, um, uh, was very fraught because they were putting restrictions on us as to what we could use and, and what we could use. you're talking about the, the school? The school, the governors, the head. Uh, we couldn't come in the entrances that we used to. Uh, we couldn't use classrooms to serve refreshments to our audience. It then got to a point where I knew we got to do something about it. Eventually it got to a meeting with the uh, governors and uh, the uh, head. Uh, that was in the end of 2015 and they put even further restrictions on us, right. uh, which I won't go into detail, but there was a lot of restrictions, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, so... Which is strange, after 67 years, 68 years of, uh, of no problems, there were never any accidents, there were never any complaints. I think a lot of it came about because over the years, uh, health and safety became more and more important, yeah. and mainly for the children. And because we had such a, a good, um, rapport with the heads in the past mm. there were a lot of unwritten uh, allowances that we were allowed to do yeah. and then of course as other heads came in they didn't know about that yeah. and so they didn't like it. Yeah. And it and things changed. At one time CADS was a real asset to this school and it was an example of the school working with the community. Yes. Uh, from the school's point of view they were probably thinking about the best thing for the children, but from my point of view, and maybe from your point of view, David, they were 
they were allowing themselves to be drifted into this imaginary, imaginary realm of health and safety nightmares that had never occurred in That's 67 right. years. They didn't want us here anymore. Yeah. And, that, and so at the end of the meeting, I said, look, I'm sorry, but we, we can't perform under these conditions anymore. Uh, you know, it's impossible to give our audiences what they should be getting for the, as paying, uh, paying people to come and see plays. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid we've got to move. So, so suddenly CADS was homeless. We were homeless. Facing an, point. A, an uncertain future. The company had been here for 67 years. It never had to find a new home. Thankfully, Dave, not everything was lost, but you did have some work to do. So where are we off to next? Right, I want you to take you to our new home, which is the Gayton uh, uh, Road Community Centre, ah. you know, and then you'll see how lucky we were. Yeah. Let's go. Okay, let's have... Here we are in Gayton Road Community Centre, which is 10 minutes down the road from the old home. Come into our new home and theatre. Yeah. They say it seats 150. We, we try to limit it to 130, 140 ma maximum as, as being comfortable. Yeah. When CADS first moved here, was this space ready for a performance? <laughs> Nowhere near. Right. Uh, the stage hadn't been used for 40 years. Wow. It was dilapidated and there was a false ceiling on the stage. Right. So all the lighting systems would have been above that area, so we couldn't. That all had to be moved out. Let's go up to the stage now, Dave. So it's, okay. it's, it's a proscenium arch space. The stage is about five foot raised yes we're just going up the stairs now onto the stage and the, there's some lovely thick blue curtains here were these here when you no these have all been bought by between cads and the uh, the community center right so we shared the cost okay. so we're now on the stage there's two doors at the back of the stage and i'm always intrigued dave to see the backstage setup of any company so shall we start there yes see where these doors let's lead. go through this way shall we yeah. We have got two dressing rooms. They're not massive dressing rooms, but um, we have sufficient uh, space. There's, on the wall here, there's a, a makeup mirror with, with light bulbs going all around it, as you would expect to see in a backstage dressing room. It's, although, it's, although it's good facilities, it's not, it's not a palace. <laughs> there's buckets full of water on the floor. Yes. There's an old Victorian radiator that's rusting away. Which does work. Which does work. I've yeah. just put my hand yeah. on it. Yeah, it's warm. It's warm. Yes, yeah, yes it's it does work. Yes. Uh, and there's some green mould on the walls. Now, yeah. hopefully, the new roof will sort the damp problem out. Yes. And then, cabs, we've already said, now we've got that done, yeah. we will come in here and we will redo this, these rooms. Oh, this whole building. Uh, was originally built in about nine, uh, 1941, right. which was during the war. Yeah. And this whole area, this estate, was a sort of Polish immigration or, uh, uh, you know, from, from the war when they were getting out of Poland. Yeah, the refugees. Re refugees, really. Yeah. The Polish people used to eat here, yeah. make their entertainment here, yeah. you know, and do, and do everything. So the first plays that were put on in this space and the first people that used these dressing rooms were Polish refugees well, possibly, yes. entertaining their own community yes, possibly. during the war. Oh yes, I mean they told me when I came here that they were, which was music to my ears, uh, we're looking for someone 
to come and take over this theatre as an amateur company mm. and make it into a live theatre again. Mm. And that's where we came in. So it's so lucky. Right people, oh, right yes. place, right time. Absolutely. Uh, we're looking up now into the, the, the ceiling space of the stage where there's uh, two lighting bars. Uh, yeah, there are three actually. Were there any electrics, stage electrics, when you um, came there, in? There were some electrics in, but it wasn't enough mm. for our lighting. We talked together with the centre and they uh, brought an electrical guy in. Oh, right, that's and, good. And uh, they, we told them what we needed and how many, how many lighting uh, points we needed and everything else. And the community centre paid for all of that electrical Brilliant. work. Brilliant. And so, that would have been a number of hundred pounds. Easily. Oh, yeah, it went, in, it went over the thousand pounds, right, mark, I'm sure. Yeah, so. We were really grateful for the community centre to do this for us. And they right. worked with us a lot. Mm. I mean, all this paint work and that. They painted the hall mm. not long after we got here, ready for our first performance. Mm. How long did it take you as a, as a company <laughs> to, to get the performance space from, from its dormant state into yeah. a place where it could be used? Well, it, we, we started here at, uh, at the end of January. Mm. We used to come up for a whole day on a Friday. Right. Then the big move from uh, Penny Hill School, as it is, yeah. Uh, to here, we did it in a day. Blimey. We had ev or everybody who was associated with the company, with cars, vans, uh, and we took everything out, all the lighting, all the, f the flooring. The flooring that's under here was originally on the stage at the school. Blimey. And, uh, and we bought everything here, the furniture, the props. That was in March, and we started building a set on the 1st of April. And our first performance uh, went in, uh, in uh, uh, at the end of April, beginning of May. So yeah, a, lot a lot of work. A lot of hard work. A lot of work. And what was that first play that was on in this space? We did a play called Flamingo Land. Oh, right. Uh, it's, uh, and it's about um, uh, a woman who's, uh, well, dying, uh, and uh, her three daughters they are, she's getting rid of everything and giving it out. There's boxes mm. with their names on it. it. That daughter will have that and that daughter will have that. And every scene you go to, there's a bit less furniture in the room. Well, you know what, Dave? Isn't that spookily a bit like cads moving out of their old exactly. home? Exactly. And, and yes. passing on what was into a new generation, a new space and yes. moving forwards. Yes. And I don't know how that happened because we'd already planned that play mm. and partly cast it before we decided to move. That's spooky. Yes. <laughs> that, that's spooky. That brings us up to the here and now, David. We've been reading plays. We think we've found something. Uh, we want to cast it next month. Great. And you've got a, a troupe now that are sort of turning up for the readings. Yes, you yes. Think you'll be able to yeah, cast it. And so I think we can cast it. One of the things are is... It's not only finding the people to go on stage, it's all the other people, the backstage people, the yeah. front of house and all yeah. that sort of thing, yeah. technical side. Yeah. Uh, we need to replace a lot of those as well. Yeah. So that's still an ongoing yeah. search. And if anyone in West Bromwich was listening to this, Cads, um, Dave, how would they get... <laughs> I am Cads. <laughs> <laughs> the one-man Cads. Yes. How would they get in touch? Well, we do have a website. Yeah. 
Uh, which, Facebook, is it? Uh, there's a Facebook, there's a website. If you put CADS in, yeah. it'll or, find or, us. Or if, I suppose if you Google Charlemagne Dramatic Society. Yes, yeah. it, it'll find us. And we would welcome anybody who was interested in joining us. Dave, your history with amateur theatre covers decades. We've got some questions we like to ask all of our podcast guests. Tell us about your first love. Well, I was always interested in singing as a lad, choir boy style. Um, but in 1960, I went to see a production uh, of The King and I, and the West Bromwich Operatic Society were performing, and I went to see it because a young friend of mine was playing one of the sons of, of Tula Longhorn, I think it was, his, his part. But I sat there, and it was absolutely fabulous. There must have been about... 70 in the cast. Mm. They sold the theatre out on so, Saturday night, so 2,000 people. 2,000 people. On Saturday night. Yeah. And, uh, the so a real buzz, a real atmosphere. Oh, yeah. And the yeah. scenery, the costumes, the lighting, mm. and the chorus singing, the, which I was obviously loved at that point, uh, was fantastic. And I just wanted to be part of it. Now, the little romantic link in this is that I didn't know at the time, but my future wife was in that show. And I didn't know her then. And she was a dancer mm. in The King and I in 1960. So in 1962, we got together, started courting, as they used to say in those days. Yeah. In 1964, I joined West Bromwich Operatic Society. And uh, because someone dropped out, and they were playing the part of a beef eater in Merry England. Right. Which is an old, really old show. Uh, good music. And that took part in the King's Theatre in West Bromwich, which used to be the old Plaza Theatre. Right. And it was changed into a cinema, the Kings, the old Kings, mm. and they allowed us to change it from a cinema to a theatre for one week in the year, every year, right. for quite a few years. Yeah. It meant moving the big screen back and all the sound equipment behind mm. that. So anyway... And how many did that seat, that theatre in West Bromwich? It was probably just over the thousand mark, so I would think. So that was a big oh, theatre oh, as yes, well? Oh yes, a thousand, thousand, one hundred, something like that. Yes, yes, it was a big theatre, lovely theatre. Mm. It all sort of took off from there. I, I was on the committee by 1967 mm. and I did many jobs culminating in being chairman for six years from 1997 to 2003. So we made lots of friends got to know a lot of people, and mm. that was my life. Yeah. That became our lives. Mm. Um, Dave, our second question, what's been the love of your theatrical life? Uh, the one that stood out was the one that we did just before the pandemic, and it meant that Sylvia and I did a two-hander on stage, mm. uh, which was September in the Rain by John Godper. And it was really a story about his grandparents who used to go to Blackpool every year in September for their holidays and of course it always rained mm. and it was all the things that went on in their life over that, those visits to Blackpool and I thoroughly enjoyed mm. doing that. And, and just for our audience, a two-hander, what we're saying there is there's just two cast members. Yes, we were both on stage all of the time and uh, it was a challenge, all the words, especially as you get older, mm. but uh, we we, we had some fun out of it, and uh, we hope that the audience enjoyed it, I think. Uh, I, I was sat in one performance, and what I loved about it was, 
I mean, Cads do have a loyal audience, so most of them knew that yeah. you and Sylvia have been married a long time. <laughs> yes. So there was this wonderful dynamic where there's two characters who've been married a long time looking back on their lives, you know, but also there's two actors on stage who've been married a long time who are facing the challenge of doing this two-hander and occasionally the, the jumping around with lines and bringing each other back to the right place, but in such a way that the audience didn't really notice, but it was, it was a wonderful interplay of the real and yeah. what you were faking. Yes, it so, is. So yes. John Gobber, was it Hull Truck Theatre Company? He was Hull Truck Theatre Company. Um, which obviously is, is not based in London, so you're getting a voice that you... We get so much theatre that is London-centric and right. South-East-centric, and the voice of the North gets lost, really. Yes. And so the, the strength of John Gobber and why it resonated with CAD's audiences is because you get that voice that feels more authentic. Yes, yes. Yeah. And we, we, th there was a connection as well, really, because um, we had the chairman before, and we, his name was Moindig Price. Mm. I think you might remember yes, him. Yes, I do remember him. And uh, But his son became a uh, professional director, right. Gareth Tudor Price. Right. And he did plays in the West End, and he was studied at the Bristol uh, uh, Old Vic and that mm. sort of place. And he went and joined the whole truck theatre company as uh, as an artistic director and he uh, he worked together a lot with john godper wow and so he got to know a lot of and then uh, he directed a lot of john godper's plays and it was seeing september in the rain that gareth had directed that came locally to lichfield mm. uh, that that made us think we could do that so that's a uh, an amazing story of, of things going full circle. So he's, the, Gareth's father, Wynne, was yes. at CADS. Yes. You know, spent a lot of time many working years. at CADS and he, he, was, he was the chairman here for many years. His son went off, had a great career, worked with this guy, John Godber, who yes. wrote a lot of plays. And I think it's said that John Godber's plays are some of the most often performed plays yes. in the UK. Um, and then those plays made their way back onto the stage of yes. CADS. Yes. That's lovely, isn't it? Fantastic. Yeah. And CADS, as we say, has been going since um, 1947. Yeah. So it's a company with a real rich history that's, that's been handed down and yes. handed down and handed down. Yeah. And what's that you've got there, uh, Dave? I bought this to show you because it's like a school exercise book, isn't it? This is the first minute book of CADS and it's handwritten. And it starts at 1947. Wow. So all of what we're looking at now, yes. the first general meeting was held on 26th of August, very nice handwriting, yeah. 26th of August, 1947. Yes. They stated at the end of that meeting that their production for their first play would be um, uh, Ian Hayes' play called The Housemaster. And that was the first one in 1947. So it's a company with a rich history, and it's and these things ebb and flow, I suppose. And, yes. And yes. I'm sure there were there were challenges, you know, that we're not aware of in the company's past. Absolutely. And and, and as we've discussed, there's been challenges that that you've had to face as chairman and, and get yes. the company through. And the show must go on, David. Absolutely. That's that's the thing. <laughs> the show must go on. It has to. It yes. has to. And it will. Yeah. And it will. And, and going back to our questions, tell us about the one that got away. 
an awkward one for me because I've had such a lot of small parts. Not, I've never had mm. major parts, mm. but I would have loved to have played one major part. Mm. And we read it a few times at CADS and we never did it. And that was The Dresser. Right. And uh, The Dresser is a fantastic play and the film. It's a story about a um, Shakespearean actor and his dresser. Right. And his dresser did everything for him. And it takes part all in the dressing room at the side of the stage. And then you can see past the side of the stage where the performance is taking place yeah. on the stage. So and it's they... sort of a play within a play. Oh, yes. Metadrama. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's a powerful piece. If you, ever get, if you haven't seen it, mm. watch the film. Right. There is a film called okay. of The Dresser. Well, I will. Yeah. I'll definitely look yeah, that up. Yeah, it's one, it's one worthwhile doing and it's a, for any company to do. Mm. Uh, but uh, it is one that I would have, I would have loved to have played. Mm. That was really the only one. Mm. David, tell us about a time when you died on stage. I was in a production of Fiddler on the Roof. That was at the Alexander Theatre, 1989. And I played the Russian constable. So I had a big overcoat, cold in Russia, mm. with a big hat, uh, fur hat and what have you, and a rifle. Yeah. And uh, I was the Russian constable. And in one scene, I had to go on stage and uh, I had to tell them that they had to leave Anatevka. Uh, I think it's called a pogrom these days, they call it. And they, um, so I had to tell them to leave. And it, I had about two pages of script. And at the end of that script, I had to say to them, you've got three days to get out of here. In a bit of a Russian accent, of course. Right, of course. So I went to go on stage and something distracted me. And my... Jacket came out, my microphone came dislodged, and I fiddled and faffed and got on, walked on stage in the end. And by the time I got in stage, all the company were on stage. There was about 60, 70 people on stage. Big cast. Yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, and big, and, big audience. Oh yes, yeah. yes. For, for uh, you know, Alexander Theatres, a thousand two hundred seat or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And um, and I had to s tell. Tevye, he was the leader of the community. He was the milkman, but he was the leader of the community. I had to tell him about what was going to happen. But I couldn't remember a word. My mind went completely blank. Yeah, just empty. I hadn't got any idea whatsoever. It was because of all this going on just before I went on. So what did I do? Tevye looked at me, and I looked at him, and I said... The only line that I could remember was, you've got three days to get out of here. Instead of carrying on, he said, why? Oh, no. And I said, uh, I've just told you, you've got three days to get out of here. And he said, I don't understand. What a bugger. And I said, I won't tell you again. <laughs> you've got three days to get out of here. And he said something, but I don't know what it was. But all of a sudden, it came back. It came back mm. and I went back to the beginning of my script because at this point I was hoping that I was standing on the trapdoor and it was going to open yeah. and swallow me up. Yeah. And 
wearing the big jacket, I was sweating profusely. Yeah, the thousand people staring yes. at you. Stage lights. But they may not have known I was still talking. It wasn't the right words. But anyway, I went all the way through my two pages of script. And at the end of it, I said, so as I told you before, you've <laughs> three got times. three days to get out of here. And, <laughs> and I walked, marched off stage and literally collapsed in the wings like, yeah. you know. But when the company came off, I mean, they were in hysterics, you know. It was a serious part in the show. Mm. They were being made homeless mm. again. So I, um, so, you know, for ages after that, my name was Dave Three Days Hill. Happy days, Dave. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Lots, of, lots of memories. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's been great to, to get an insight into CADS. Uh, the, the history and the, the current where you are now and uh, the trials that you faced with, with your new home. Um, thank you very much, Dave, for coming on to our podcast. You're very welcome. It's been enjoyable talking about something that I love mm. and talking to you about it. Wonderful to hear about CADS there and what goes on in other amateur theatres. Thanks, John. Now, since this is our December episode, that can only mean one thing, the Christmas production. And in theatre or amateur theatre, a Christmas production means children. Now, going to the theatre can be a wonderful experience for children and families. It helps family bonding and strengthens relationships. It creates shared memories and laughter. It helps improve emotional intelligence. It prompts conversations around tricky but important subjects. And it fires the imagination. When asked how to create a play for children, the theatre director, Konstantin Stanislavski, famously replied, The same as for adults, only better. So what are the right ingredients for a piece of children's theatre? There are many different styles, but many productions will have some things in common that audiences can spot. Shows are usually created for those between about 3 and 11 years old, although it's important to make sure that while the content's age-appropriate, it doesn't talk down to children. Children are sensitive to being patronised, and they won't like it. Successful children's shows will have certain conventions that they follow. That is, certain rules, or ways of doing things, or things to do, that have become established over time. And theatre productions for children often follow these conventions, so that they can keep the young audience involved and interested. Some of these conventions include talking directly to the audience, known as direct address, audience participation, such as call and response, or sing-along, or in some types of show, making the audience part of the action and involving them in the story, whether with the whole audience or a handful of excited volunteers, using a chorus or a person or group of people on stage who comment on what's happening on stage, sometimes as characters in the action, sometimes as observers on the outside, although a chorus might have a different role in a musical show. Other types of family show, and children's shows in particular might use all, some, or none of these conventions, but it's usual for a children's show to use at least some of these to keep children drawn into the action and story. For example, if a show uses direct address, children can relate well to a main character who talks directly to the audience and asks for advice or responses or tells them jokes. Humour's another popular way to keep children interested. Family shows are often designed to entertain adults with them too, so you might get other humour and more grown-up references designed to whistle harmlessly over the little one's heads a trope commonly referred to as a parental bonus. But shows designed completely or mainly with children in mind will have more of certain kinds of humour. There's simple word humour, 
such as puns and knock-knock jokes, made-up words and play-on words so that children can enjoy messing around with the world of language and sense. There's visual gags, like slapstick, the good old pie in the face, and knowing things the characters don't know and seeing things the characters can't see. You might recognise some of these conventions from family pantomimes, and there's a good reason why so many stock call and responses still stick around in pantomime after more than a hundred years. He's behind you! And there's many more types of humour besides that children enjoy, like situational comedy, exaggerated behaviour, and music, sound or sight gags. Children can have a sophisticated sense of humour, but most will enjoy a character whiz-popping when they shouldn't. The rhythm of scenes in children's theatre is also likely to include short, sharp scenes to hold their attention and keep things moving. And you're also not going to find many flashbacks or experimental structures. Most pieces will use a simple narrative structure that children will find easy to follow. Think once upon a time, through to, and they all lived happily ever after. Tried and tested narratives can also be a reason why existing stories like fairy tales or children's books make for popular stage adaptations. Children will struggle to follow the story less if they're already familiar with it. Children also learn by repetition, as anyone with young ones will attest. And they can be less intimidated by stories or characters they recognise, and enjoy anticipating the parts of the story they might already know that are coming up. And, of course, adapting a popular book or other property, like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Peter Pan, Fantastic Mr Fox, James and the Giant Peach, or Mary Poppins, means you know you're starting with a story that children already enjoy, and you can make the most of the things that made them popular. This includes the story, and for a story to work well on the stage, the characters have to be believable, and the actual journey of the story needs to be about reaching some sort of goal at the end. But other favourite bits of the popular story can include favourite characters, favourite baddies, spectacular scenes, silly words, and quite often, but not always, songs. We said before that children learn by repetition, and songs often use simple repeated words and phrases and tunes which help young audiences take in information. And of course, song and dance numbers don't just break up the story, making it easier to pay attention, and aren't just fun to watch, but they're often a chance for a good old sing-along or a boogie, for little ones to get their wiggles out, and to get the children interacting with what's going on on stage. Children's productions can also be as sophisticated or as simple as productions for adults. When you think of children's productions, you might think of a spectacular adaptation that's a family day out, like The Snowman, Shrek, The Gruffalo, or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And these are designed to look and sound amazing, and make the most of the many technical artistic departments, like costumes and lights and set design and music and sound. They might have musical numbers, or complicated technical effects, like puppetry, vehicles or projection. Children have terrific imaginations, of course, and many successful children's productions need no costume, set, props or effects at all, as long as it's a good story that's structured, produced and performed well. Using those tricks we mentioned to keep the young audience engaged, children can enjoy it just as much. Smaller scale or amateur shows have to be very imaginative to create appealing and exciting shows for children on a smaller budget without the benefit of, say, a 20-foot fibreglass peach, revolving stage or flying car or shrinking Alice. Many shows often feature young or small main characters for the children to identify with. Shows might be very realistic, like the railway children, but often there's a hint of magical realism, like in Matilda, or lots of magic and fantasy to intrigue children, in stories where talking animals, flying nannies, 20-foot peaches, fairy godmothers, witches, wizards and wardrobe doors can spark little imaginations and make little eyes big with wonder. Besides some common formats and devices, there's no set type of show or reason for creating a show for children. It might be educational, 
a way to use theatre and workshops to let students actively and creatively explore important ideas and issues. It might teach or explore morals, like fairy tales for young children or bigger issues for older children. Or it might just be for fun, a wonderful way to entertain children and maybe introduce them to the fizz-whizzing magic of the theatre and create memories to share. Now, Luke and John have headed over to the Get-In for the Crescent Theatre's 2021 Christmas production of James and the Giant Peach. The Get-In is the process of building the set on the stage, as well as rigging all of the sound and lighting equipment, and everything else that has to happen in the performance space to make it ready for the show. While they were there, they caught up with a few members of the crew to find out what they do at the Get-In, and play our trivia quiz. Gobblefunk? Or Fobblegunk? I've just managed to distract Keith Harris here for a moment as we're sat on the lunch break of the getting for James and the Giant Peach. Keith, thanks for agreeing to speak to us. No problem at all. My pleasure. Open up the getting for our listeners. Can you let us know what your role is in the production? Uh, in the production, James and the Giant Peach. Yes, I'm um, designer. So I've I've designed the set um, and we've painted it in the workshop, built it in the workshop and um, here it is today on the stage. Well, we spend uh, a certain amount of time I mean, with James and the Giant Peach. We spent probably a month in the workshop um, from initial design stage. We sp- then spent a month in the workshop building it and painting it. So you and started building it a month ago? Yes, thereabouts, right. yeah. yeah. And, um, and we, we build it in sort of prefabricated way so that we can move it from the workshop onto the stage when we have the day of the get-in, which is today. Get-in simply means that we manage to get in to the theatre, or get in onto the stage, to set up all the, all the set, uh, make sure all the scenery works, fly all the necessary pieces that come from the fly gallery, and just generally get it ready for open night next week. And you make it sound very easy, Keith. Is it always easy? No. <laughs> <laughs> we try to make it as easy as we can. Um, depending on the size of the show, James and the Giant Peach being a Christmas show, we sort of go all out to make sure that the set works. It's for children, therefore we like to try and make fantasy work and the yeah. magic work. Yeah. Um, and I think we've achieved that with this one. Um, we do obviously smaller stuff, we do smaller sets, we do smaller shows, but generally the Christmas show, as this one is, and the musical, the main musical, tend to be very big sets. And yes, they come with their own problems, of course they do. But we always manage to overcome them. Yeah. And so you've, you've designed and built the set for James and the Giant Pitch, and we're sat here now looking at a half-built set on the stage. What sort of set have you built? Well, um, again, it came with its own um, problems because at one, at one stage it's the house which is set um, in a peach stone, funnily enough, in Central Park in New York and then um, because of magic crystals and things like that the peach grows um, and it and it we have to revolve it so we have to turn it from the house to the interior of the peach Um, or based on a true story as well of course (laughs) (laughs) it's just the Roald Dahl story oh yes it's the Roald Dahl story but yes. yes Great. So what we're looking at here and what, what, what was a complicated moment this morning was 
that we can see the house, but it's on a piece of wood, which is itself on wheels, which we call a revolve. That's right. And it's circular, so it, it turns around. And what we see now, which is the front of the house, that goes round the back, and then from the back comes the interior of the house. Correct. The um, interior of the peach, yes. Yeah. And would you say getting that revolve onto stage today, um, where we had to take it down into the orchestra pit, a lot of people were involved, it was very heavy, to flip it over and get it on the right side. Was that the most complicated thing we'll do today? Yes. Uh, yes, it really is, because purely and simply because of the weight of it. Um, it took, I don't know how many people, 12 people, yeah, 12 least. guys to, yeah. to turn it over. And then it has to be set onto a centre a pivot, which is already preset on the stage. Um, but now it's there. It, it, that's, that's not going to move now for another two weeks, two and a half weeks, um, other than when it's um, being used on the set and it revolves from one side one side round to the other. And, and what's left to do this afternoon? Um, we've got to put a little skirt round the revolve. Mm. Um, round the bottom, so we can't that, see the wheels. That's right. Yeah. Um, and one or two little odd jobs, but basically I think we've more or less finished now for today, which is great. Maybe another hour in, in the, uh, the theatre. <sighs> great. And have you been at gettings that have gone on till late in the evening before? Yeah, well, we both have, haven't we, from yeah. time to time. <laughs> um, yeah, that sometimes they do, because we, we have today um, to... It's not just us, it's LX as well, so the electrics people need to get their flying bars in to set lanterns and things like that. And certainly with a huge piece of scenery like this is, um, they have to make sure that they can get their bars down to stage level to get their lights on them before we can actually erect what is now the peach. Yeah. Um, because now that's in place, they can't bring the bars all the way down. So we had to wait a little bit for them today, but we did have, have other things to do. So um, yeah, I think today has been really successful and the fact that it's now what, Two o'clock, we started this morning at 10. Mm. There's four hours, is, is pretty good for a getting. Yeah, it's pretty good. And it, 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 there's been a nice number of people here to help today. There have been. We, we've had some amazing um, people in today. Uh, everybody helps, and it does make, it just makes the job that difference. much easier. Many yeah. hands make light work. Too right, yeah, absolutely right. right. And how did you get into set building, Keith? Is it a difficult skill to learn? Um, I've been doing set design and build for, as a hobby, for um, 30 years now, wow. more than 35 years. And all of that at the Crescent or...? Yes, all at the Crescent. My, my day job, I'm retired now, but my day job was graphics, graphic design, so I've always right. been a designer. Yeah. But when I first joined the Crescent, and instead of working on sort of A4 leaflets and business cards and things like that, all of a sudden I've got a 40-foot stage. Um, and I can really let my imagination go wild. It's not just though in two dimensions, which is what I've always designed. It's actually in a three-dimensional way. So I have a technical, I've, I've gained a technical knowledge as well. So I know that sets that I design, I hope look good, but they certainly work. Yeah. Technically they work. Yeah. Um, and that tends to be the way I design. We've got another couple of designers in, in the theatre and we all have different styles, so it works really well. Yeah. You know, some people, there's one guy, Colin, who, who, a lot of his stuff is, he like, you know, room sets and period pieces. Yeah. and very realist. Very realistic. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's amazing the way that he paints stuff and everything else. I tend to go for a more graphic-y, uh, technical style. Yeah, and what we're looking at here is sort of 
off-cut windows and rounded edges, and it's a fantasy feel. It's bright colours, perfect for um, James and the Giant Peach. Yeah. And are there vacancies for set builders at the Crescent if someone was listening to this and very much trying their hand? Very much so. We're Myself and, and Phil Parsons tend to be the main guys that are, are building and, and painting, and we're not getting any younger. Mm. Um, so, yeah, some, some younger blood or, you know, if people just want to come along and spend a couple of hours or a couple of days in the workshop and help us out whilst we're, you know, whilst we're doing stuff, just um, just watch what's going on on the, on the website because the Crescent website, we quite often put things, and in the Crescent newsletter, saying, you know, we'll be in doing so-and-so. If anybody wants to come along, just get in touch and, yeah. and we'll, we'll show them the ropes. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much, Keith. You're more than welcome. I hope we get it finished uh, in the next few hours and looking forward to seeing the show. Yeah, well, hopefully the opening... It, it opens on the 7th of April. Uh, 7th of April. I've got, got, got the date somewhere. Really. <laughs> 7th of December. December, 7th yeah, you're to right. the 18th of December. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's, and some days we're doing three shows a day. It should be a good, fun Christmas show for all the family. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Keith. Thanks, John. The author of the children's book, James and the Giant Peach, Roald Dahl, played with language in his writing to entertain readers. He invented over 500 words and character names using combinations of letters that were just more fun to say, like Iggle, Opple, Is and Oz, swapping bits of existing words around and playing with word beginnings and endings and alliterations, all to add life to his descriptions, worlds and characters. To commemorate what would have been Roald Dahl's 100th birthday, Oxford University Press released a special colour illustrated Roald Dahl Oxford Dictionary in 2016, celebrating Roald Dahl's unique gobble funk language. Can you tell the difference between a real made-up Roald Dahl word or just a made-up made-up Roald Dahl word? Is it gobble funk or fobblegunk? I'm Alan Bull and I'm the production manager. I'm also one of the two stage managers. Okay, and how are you helping out today with the getting? Well, I'm, uh, uh, as it were, making sure that everything is going according to plan and mucking in with whatever needs doing. So there's been some heavy lifting, there's been some flying. So the first word we're going to do is fizzwiggler. I'm going to go for gobblefunk. Yes, you're right, it is gobblefunk. In fact, it was used in the BFG. It means somebody who is mean or cruel. The BFG used it actually to describe Mrs Clonkers, who ran the orphanage. The BFG was released in 1982 and it's had 37 million copies in the UK printed. Hi, I'm Graham. I'm one of the fly, the fly crew for this production. Uh, working up in the fly gallery, raising and lowering scenery as an on-command by from the stage manager. So, the first word that we're going to say is verminicious. Is that gobblefunk or is it fobblegunk? That's so, fobblegunk. Okay, believe it or not, it's actually gobblefunk. It was a real word that he made up. It's oh, actually right. a word used in James and the Giant Peach. All oh, right, this <laughs> production so... obviously I haven't yeah. paid attention, didn't you? <laughs> well, the, you're more informed now. James and the Giant Peach was published in 1961, and there was even a film about it released in 1996. Yeah, in the story, you don't want to come up against a vermicious canid. Hello, I am Mark Sean Walsh, and I am the director of James and the Giant Peach. <laughs> I am... Hanging around, basically. <laughs> There's not much for me to do on this first day, so I'm giving a hand wherever needed. In our gobblefunk or fobblegunk game, the first word we give you is pobblenosed. I'm going to go fobblegunk. You are right. It is. It's not a real word. Basically, we made that up from Edward Lear's "The Pobble Who Has No Toes," as you do. And then the other word that I'm going to say is grunion. 
So the last word is grunion. I'm going to go gobblefunk. It is gobblefunk, yes. It's a word that means a very mean or grumpy person from... From the twits. Very close. Oh. It's from George's Marvellous Medicine. I got very, close. very close. <laughs> <laughs> George's Marvellous Medicine was published in 1981 and dedicated to doctors everywhere. And uh, I just wanted to read this because it's just hilarious. Though it was a popular book for reading to children in primary school, great care was taken by teachers to warn children to not try and recreate the medicine at home due to the hazardous nature of ingredients. There is a disclaimer warning before the story stating, warning to readers, do not try to make George's Marvellous Medicine yourselves at home, it could be dangerous. And in 2020, a team of British researchers performed a toxicological investigation into the potion and all 34 of its ingredients and they reported that if ingested it could cause vomiting, kidney injury, convulsions and other severe health problems including the most likely clinical outcome, death. So in case that wasn't obvious, don't try this at home. Go over to a friend's house. What? No, okay, don't, don't do that. Well, we've been at the getting now for about two hours would you say Luke? I would say that yeah um, and some of the flies are now up there's clouds have gone onto the flying tower and a lot of the lights have been rigged but we've reached a crucial point in terms of one huge piece of scenery uh, how would you describe that scenery Luke? Well it's looking like a huge circular pit of scenery that's covered with wheels because it's upside down yeah. and at the moment it's covering the first two rows of the audience so I hope it's not like that on the night otherwise some people are going to be pretty annoyed with what they've paid for but oh, don't worry that's just somebody losing their life that, that's exactly what just happened um, and in a minute we're going to lower a lift and try and turn it over so I'm going to go and help yeah hang on one second but if we roll it to the end, you can get more along the edge of the stage. It might just be a push it hard enough, you'll catch it. <laughs> Are we rolling it? Do you want to go back again? Well, I think we need to go slightly twisting yeah. so that the joins at yeah, a nice roll degree. It back this way. Who's on the button? Okay, try again. Yeah, this isn't staying like this. <laughs> <laughs> can we go up a bit more? I think we. I think the wheels are caught just on the safe edge. That bar needs to go out as well. What's your diet? Oh, just to get into So how was moving the peach for you, Luke? I don't think I can feel my fingers anymore. It's five metres across. Yeah. And it was upside down, so it was wheels up. And what needed to happen was wheels needed to go down because the peach uh, rotates round and round like, yeah. a, like a disco ball. Sure. And in order to do that, uh, everybody involved took this huge heavy piece of wood uh, we, understatement we lowered it into the orchestra pit using a hydraulic lift and then flipped it round and then brought it back up and used the orchestra pit as a sort of lever and now we've got it the right way round uh, but it was hairy wasn't it Luke? Yes it was <laughs> there were points where there was a lot going on uh, there was a worry that we were going to hit one of the lighting bars at one stage which had to be quickly de-rigged yeah. Yeah. Uh, but all's well that ends well. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, the good thing is that a lot of us are probably in the best shape we've been in a long time now. Thank you for listening to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at podcast.crescent-theatre.co.uk or via Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts to get the next episode. You can find out more about the Crescent Theatre Birmingham and our upcoming productions, including James and the Giant Peach, by visiting www.crescent-theatre.co.uk or by following us on social media. Amateur of Life and Death is a Crescent Theatre production. 
It's researched and presented by Laura East, John O'Neill and Luke Plimmer and produced by Liz Plumpton and Kevin Middleton. The music is by Brendan Stanley and the podcast is edited by Kevin Middleton. Thank you.